Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. Today, we're bringing you another Explained episode, where we take a question we get frequently from our listeners and take a deep dive to explain it. If you have any questions you'd like us to cover on upcoming Explained episodes about the upcoming election or our mission or anything else, you can reach us at podcast at lincolnproject.us. So let's dive in. We've got numerous questions about what will happen after the election is called. Donald Trump has refused to answer whether he'll accept the results of the election. This has left us wondering if the votes are tallied and Joe Biden wins, will Donald Trump adhere to a peaceful transfer of power to a Biden administration? So to help break this down, we have my fellow Lincoln Project co-founder and national political strategist, Steve Schmidt. Thanks for being on, Steve. Great to be with you, Ron. Let's start with the first two transfers of power in the United States. The first one was in 1797, and then the second one was in 1800. Can you begin with the first one, explain what that precedent did, and then explain the difference between what happened then and in 1800? So the, the peaceful transition of power is one of the great miracles of the United States. And George III was hugely curious about what George Washington would do. Um, he asked, he said, what, what will Washington do? And he understood that Washington could have been a king, could have been an emperor. And George Washington had decided, and, and when George III was told that Washington would go home to Virginia, and that he would be, in essence, the first person in 2,000 years of human history to step away from the type of power that he could have had, absolute power if he had wished it, and he didn't. And he set in motion what has gone on uninterrupted through civil war, through assassination, through world war, through depression, through the inauguration of the 45th president, Donald Trump. And it's this idea that in this constitutional republic, the oldest in the world, that the people are sovereign, the people elect their leaders. And the leaders serve at the will of the people under a constitutional system where no one is above or below the law. And so that's what's at stake. And you look at the election of 1800, John Adams against Thomas Jefferson, and you have for the first time in that election that the loser stepping away from power acceding to the will of the people. And so when Donald Trump talks about that there'll be no peaceful transition of power or it's dependent on an outcome that's favorable to him, it is such a breach of faith with the republic, with every patriot that shed blood to preserve it. And it is an unpardonable offense for a president to commit. So let's talk a little bit more about what happened in 1800, because this was the first transfer of power between two political parties. John Adams squared off against Democratic-Republican Thomas Jefferson in the election. This was the first election with presidential running mates 
which created a bit of a hiccup at the time. Thomas Jefferson and his running mate Aaron Burr received 73 electoral votes. The election was thrown to the House of Representatives. After 36 ballots, 36 ballotings, Jefferson was elected president by the House of Representatives. And even after the chaos of a House vote to determine the president, Adams left the White House. He also did name a number of judicial appointments, including Chief Justice John Marshall, in the lame duck term, and he didn't attend the inauguration. Can you talk about whether or not we've ever seen anything like that moment in presidential history? And after this, we want to talk about the year 2000 and the constitutional questions that were raised there. But at that moment in history, had the country ever dealt with that kind of uncertainty in terms of the presidential election? No, of course not. And in that moment in time, we were a young republic. And so this moment, what what was transpiring, you know, what what people always refer to as the American experiment was happening and it was happening in real time. And and the democratic traditions that are born out of that moment are what have endured. It's part of the miracle of the of the United States. And there, there was a lot of enmity in that in that time between Adams and Jefferson, who would later who would later reconcile. And both of them die on on July 4th, uh, hours apart. And um, you, you think about those early days of the country. None of this was prescribed. And, and it's important to understand that none of it is prescribed today. Um, Ronald Reagan talked about this. He, he talked about that we're always one generation away from seeing freedom extinguished. Mm. And, and part of the, the, the tragedy that we're in in this country, I, I think, is born out of a collapse of civics education. Yeah. Is that too few Americans understand the history of the country, the governmental structure of the country, because we should all buy in. I don't care from Bernie Sanders to someone who's extremely conservative that we're a free country, we're a constitutional republic, the people are sovereign, the people decide who rules over us. This is not a land for dictators, autocrats, and men like Donald Trump. Do you think that we've lost the sense that we're all in this together, number one, and also that this is kind of a grand experiment in the history of human civilization. Though the American system of government, the peaceful transfer of power is a uniquely American invention. Is that right? Absolutely it is. And there was no such thing as a president before George Washington became one. You know, there was considerable debate about what do you call the president of the United right. States? And you know, George Washington settled on the simple Mr. President that carries forward to this day. But the idea that people were capable of governing themselves was a heretical notion. Yeah. It was astoundingly radical in this moment of history when when all of this comes to comes to life. And the ideas and the ideals in the founding documents of the country we now understand are for everybody. And what Trump is talking about is, is so profoundly un-American, you know, to hear these words coming from an American president, you know, putting doubt into the electorate about whether he will go if he's defeated. 
I want to get to Trump in a minute, but before we do, let's take a pit stop in the year 2000. After Election Day, all eyes turned to Florida, where the election was closely contested. After a lengthy recount, the Supreme Court ruled that Florida had run out of time to complete their recount. And after the decision, Democratic presidential candidate Al Gore addressed the nation. Let's take a quick listen to that clip. Let there be no doubt, while I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. I accept the finality of this outcome, which will be ratified next Monday in the Electoral College. And tonight, for the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of our democracy, I offer my concession. I also accept my responsibility, which I will discharge unconditionally, to honor the new president-elect and do everything possible to help him bring Americans together in fulfillment of the great vision that our Declaration of Independence defines and that our Constitution affirms and defends. So, Steve, can you talk about the importance of Al Gore's concession speech in that election, um, how important it was for him to accept the results, and what was at stake for American democracy? What was on the line at that moment? Well, you, you heard Vice President Gore in that clip. You concede the election, acknowledge the legitimacy of the finality of the Supreme Court's decision, though he was unhappy with the decision and had strong standing to be unhappy with that decision. But what he's saying there in that clip is that the peaceful transition of power, the choice of president, though close has been decided lawfully, consistent with the American system of constitutional governance. And pay particular attention to to the words, discharge my duties, Mm. duty, obligation, to your oath, to the flag, to the nation, ultimately to the American people. You know, Richard Nixon had grounds to contest the 1960 election, which was a very close election against John Kennedy. And he understood that to do so would bring great injury to the country, that it would erode faith in the most American of systems, which is the system by which we choose the leader of the nation. And that that system, that elections process, which plays out over now our 50 states, is a sacred process. And the fact that Trump has left the country undefended from hostile foreign powers trying to interfere in it uh, directly contravenes the warnings that George Washington had for the country in his farewell address. And is a despicable act because when a foreign power does that, we should view it for what it is, which is an act of war. Yeah. At the first presidential debate, and we're talking about this year now, both candidates were asked if they would urge their supporters to stay calm while votes are counted and not declare victory until the election is certified. Biden answered that he would honor the results of the election and that Trump will too. How important will it be for whoever loses the election to honor the electoral system? How close are we to going over the edge here? I think that Donald Trump has made clear that any result 
that he is short on, where he loses, and he's going to question the legitimacy of the election, and 30% of the country will, will be there with him. He'll have a conspiracy theory, a stab in the back theory, if you will, and that'll be that. And I think we'll be in unchartered territory in the aftermath of this election, but he will yield. We won't have a Trump coup in this country, but it's very degrading to the fabric of our of our system. And look, I, I've been on I've been on both sides of this. I'm the person who placed the call to David Pluff and congratulated him, and then he handed the phone to Senator Obama. I congratulated him and put Senator McCain on the phone and. You know, the first person that addressed Barack Obama as Mr. President-elect that mattered was John McCain. Uh, Stuart Stevens has pointed this out, that in a democracy, it requires one side willingly content with the loss under the principle of we'll get you next time, right? One side has to be able to lose. That's what's required in this, in this system. And, and so what, again, you know, what, what Trump has done in this space is just, just despicable. And this is the issue. I mean, I, for, from my perspective, the debate should stop on that question. I mean, this has been the last question in the debates in the town hall. This should be the first question in the next debate. And, and until there's a satisfactory answer and an unequivocal one, that's what the debate should be about. It seems to me that it's it's impossible to avoid the contrast between the fundamental nature of a presidential election, which is that in, these, in this country, somebody has to be willing to lose. Where we have a president now who has corrupted his own party with an ethos of winning is all that matters. So beyond the presidential election, what do you think the consequences are for the American people of the example set by this president? while he is the president of the United States, casting such doubt on the legitimacy of the upcoming election? What kind of precedent does that set for future years? It's terrible. It's a, it's a cancer in the body politic. And I think that what will happen in defeat is the Republican Party will get crazier and more extreme and more illiberal. But we, we have a, a significant percentage of the country is is willing through both its its active participation but also its silent complicity to turn away from the democratic traditions of the of the country. I mean, this is why it was so jarring 4 years ago to hear at a Republican convention the chance of lock her up being led by a former lieutenant general of the United States Army. Appalling. We don't lock up our political opponents in in this country. This isn't a banana republic. Yeah. And and what Trump has done is desecrate the traditions of the presidency and the the traditions born out over 200 plus years of the of the American Republic. And what we have to understand is that you know, democracies uh exist on the basis of their traditions and norms. Mm -hmm. And what, what fuels a healthy democracy is faith, trust, and belief in the legitimacy of the system by the people who direct that system. And, and that collapse of faith, trust, and belief 
is a is a signature failure of of Trump's in these last in these last four years. And his, history will judge him uh, very very harshly for that. How do we begin after this to move past and to start to repair the damage that he has done to the trust in the institutions and in as real and tangible a way as we can talk about for our listeners, because I think a lot gets lost when we just use the word institutions to talk about these things at a at an abstract level, especially because as you've noted, and we've talked about before on the podcast, the erosion of civic education in this country is at the root of this sort of pluralistic ignorance, if we can call it that. How do we begin to move past and heal from well, this is this is a worthy cause for some billionaire out there. And there needs to be a massive investment, a campaign to educate the American people about the country and, and how it's supposed to work. And it will take also the wisdom of restraint by our political leaders, you know, who can embrace perhaps the concept of magnanimity and victory. And, and to understand that, you know, if 45% of the country is on the, is on the other side of something, you know, maybe, just maybe, um, it's unwise to jam things down their throats in a majoritarian moment that will seed, be reciprocated, and be a higher level of degradation, right? You know, in, in return and this, this Hatfield and McCoy politics, we got to break the cycle of, of that. And, you know, people, people have to start, you know, to see some change to see the restoration of some elemental trust, Yeah, you know, in, yeah. in government, but it's a, but it's a mess. You're talking about major pieces of federal legislation that have been rammed through the Congress without any support of the opposite party. Sure. Yeah. Okay, I have two more questions before I let you go. The first is why you're so certain for our listeners, because we get a lot of questions both on the podcast and on our town halls and on social media about what happens immediately after election day. What makes you so certain that there will be no Trump coup in this country? How how do you think this will play out? Especially when you consider that we now know he owes $400 million to unknown entities that we now know because of the New York Times reporting. When you think about options available to Donald Trump, the man, being to stay in the White House and fight or go peacefully and risk prosecution, those two options don't feel equal. What makes you so certain that he won't stay and fight? He'll be arrested by the Secret Service at noon on January 20th for trespassing in the residence of the president of the United States. It's as simple as that. Okay. His term expires at noon on January 20th. The winner of the election will be the next president of the United States. And he can go out and do all the vandalism that he's going to do. But in the end, it changes nothing. He will cede power. The American people are sovereign. We are in charge. We will decide who leads us, and he will go. He will be defeated. And you see right now in these final two weeks, the downfall of the Trump presidency, the Trump regime, 
You see the complicit senators jumping off the ship like abandoning rats. You see the talk about people that have been part of this worried about whether they're going to be employable in the future. Most of them will not. Um, we will be moving very shortly into a consequences stage for a lot of people who have done unspeakable damage to this country. Speaking of the consequences phase, should Joe Biden pardon Donald Trump? No. Say more. Well, look, if, if at the end of the day, Donald Trump is investigated and, and, and found to have broken laws, he should be prosecuted like any other person would. Have we ever prosecuted a, a president after they have been? No, and we, shouldn't, and we shouldn't do it lightly. And there should be no politicization to any investigation whether it takes place by state authorities or federal authorities. But look, at the, at the end of the day, he shouldn't be treated any differently than any other, any other citizen. We don't have one set of laws in America for the Trump family and a, a different set you know, for everybody else. I mean, if you have White House staffers who have repeatedly violated the Hatch Act, and that's prosecutable, then it, it should be prosecuted. Yeah. And so ag- across the board, you know, um, the immense privilege of these people and their total disgracefulness, you know, the law to be applied to, to them like they were a black kid caught smoking a joint in Central Park. You look at the, the charity, you look at the grift, the scamming, the tax evasion. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not sitting there rooting for him to be prosecuted. I am saying, though, that he shouldn't be shielded from it either. Do you think it's possible for that kind of prosecution to happen in the current political climate without it being an extremely divisive event? It would be, it would be profoundly divisive. Any prosecution of, of Trump, right, that we're talking about is completely hypothetical. But you would want to see restraint on the part of the prosecutor. It needs to be completely buttoned up. I, I don't want to see political prosecutions in this country like you see in some third world banana republic, right? It, terrible. We don't, we don't want to go there. But that being said, right, if, if there is criminal conduct that has been unmasked because he decided to put himself out there as a political candidate for the presidency, and he won the presidency, and but for these things we now know about these other things, he shouldn't be immunized from that. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get, and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.